Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lone Wolves Club podcast, a podcast for conversations you won't find in the church, a club for those who feel like a lone wolf. I'm your host, Nicole Border, and I am so excited to jump into this little mini-series that I have put together for spooky season. Spooky season is finally here. I love this time of year. And so leading up to Halloween and even on Halloween day, I want to release different episodes related to the creepier and darker niche topics within Christianity. Topics that you definitely have not heard in the church. So we are going to kick things off with our first episode in this little mini-series, and we are going to talk about hell houses. So we're just going to go ahead and dive right in, no fancy intro or anything, because I have a lot I want to say on the topic of hell houses. So hell houses were particularly popular in certain branches of Christianity, and you guessed it, they were definitely popular with the more conservative branches of Christianity, like Pentecostals, Evangelicals, and Fundamentalists. So, as I've mentioned before, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and we weren't quite as hardcore as Fundamentalist churches but we weren't as relaxed as regular churches. So while my church did not have a hell house, we did have a play that was put on every year on Halloween called Hell's Alternative. And the point of the play was to basically scare people away from sin, away from things that would send them to eternal damnation, and offer an alternative, right, which is heaven, hence the name of the play, Hell's Alternative. So I didn't get to attend one of these plays. I would ask my parents every year if I could go watch the play because I was kind of a creepy kid. (laughs) I loved horror books. I read way too much Stephen King as a child. And so I wanted to go see this spooky, creepy play that came out every Halloween at my church. But my parents said no because they said it was too scary. In fact, it even was scary to them. And they talked about how people dressed as demons would like crawl out of like the rafters of the church and like up and down the aisles and spooky things like that. And my church was like very big and old, so I can kind of imagine people just slinking out of the shadows in creepy costumes and stuff. So anyway, I didn't get to go. And looking back, it's probably a good thing that I wasn't subjected to this play, because if it was anything like the hell houses that I have read about in order to prepare for today's episode, I probably would have been pretty traumatized, (laughs) because The things that I have read that have happened in hell houses is quite disturbing. So to basically kick things off, to provide context, I'm going to explain what hell houses are. So similar to the play that I mentioned, 
hell houses were designed to scare people into heaven, essentially. That is a broad oversimplification, but that was basically their main goal, was to scare people into heaven by presenting an idea of what hell would be like. And so hell houses were basically haunted houses, like haunted house attractions. You know, so many cities in America have them that pop up around Halloween, like House of Torment, for example. That's really popular in Texas and I'm sure other states as well. So think of it like that. Think of it as a haunted house attraction that would pop up every year around Halloween. But rather than go through a spooky haunted house like you do in a normal haunted house attraction, in hell houses, you would go through a house that would depict different kinds of sin that you could fall into and what the consequences of that sin would be, which you guessed it was eternal damnation in hell. So there would be actors dressed up as demons and the devil taunting people and essentially dragging people to hell after they committed their sins. And a lot of the content within the hell houses, a lot of the depictions of the sins were very disturbing and troubling. But before I go deeper into that, I want to back up a bit and provide a history of hell houses and how they came to be. So hell houses were very popular in the 1970s. That is where they got their start. But they really ramped up in terms of popularity in 1996 when a pastor from Colorado, I couldn't find his name, probably for a good reason, but he basically created a ministry package that taught people how to set up and create a hell house at their church. So it had a list of like resources, prop ideas, costume ideas, script ideas, things like that that would essentially teach people how to set up and run these hell houses. And he ended up selling around a thousand of those ministry kits. And I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but back in the day, back in 1996, when social media wasn't a thing, when viral marketing wasn't a thing, when the internet really wasn't that prevalent, um, it's kind of surprising that he was able to sell a thousand of these kits. And especially if, you know, a thousand hell houses were created, that's, you know, kind of a lot. So the most popular hell house, and I guess you could argue the original hell house, was called Scare Mare, and it was set up in the state of Pennsylvania. And again, this was in the mid-90s, 1996, 1997, when it was created. And it ran for many, many years, up until 2019, believe it or not, so just a few years ago. Another popular Hell House, I think it was just called Hell House, from what I remember in the article, um, was ran out of Bethel Trinity Church in Trinity, Texas. And that one also ran for years and years, again, up until about 2019. And it kind of blew my mind that these hell houses really only became defunct right before COVID. 
So anyway, that is a broad overview of how hell houses were created and where they operated. They were definitely more popular in kind of rural parts of America in smaller towns. They were where the church was kind of more the community center of the town. Let's now dive back into what would go on in a hell house. So again, if you have been to a haunted house attraction like House of Torment or something like that, you know that you usually walk through the set, you walk through the haunted house, and as you go through the haunted house, there are different rooms that depict different things happening. So maybe one room has like a creepy, like botched surgery going on. Maybe another room has like a creepy clown circus kind of theme to it. Maybe another room is full of creepy ghosts that wander around, right? So there are kind of all these different disturbing scenes similar to haunted houses. When you would go into a hell house, you would see different scenes in each room. And often these scenes were made to kind of mirror pop culture and mirror the um, evils of getting sucked into different elements of pop culture and different sins that you could fall into that will lead you to hell if you don't repent. So, for example, one very, very popular scene that was depicted in hell houses all around America was a infamous abortion scene. So I'm just going to give a quick trigger warning. If it um, bothers you to hear anything about abortions, um, please skip forward for maybe like the next five minutes. I'm going to give you like three seconds to kind of skip forward. Three, two, one. Okay, so there would be a famous or infamous rather abortion scene. And many, many people from interviews that I have read in various articles that reported on hell houses talked about how this was one of the most disturbing scenes because the actress depicting having a botched abortion done would just be like covered in fake blood. Like it would just be everywhere. And then they would graphically depict um, people, you know, cutting open her stomach, all like acting, of course, right? They would just graphically depict it, though, and they would like pull the baby out of her while it was like still like pretty much like a baby baby, not just like an embryo. They would like pull the baby out of her and just like place it in like a bowl and like whisk it away. And then demons would come and like torment the actress that had just given an abortion and basically drag her for having an abortion. And so the message was very, very clear that if you have an abortion, you are going to hell. And not only that, but you're going to be damned to like this awful botched surgery and there's going to be blood everywhere and it's going to be dark and disturbing and gross. And of course, the implications behind that also were to not engage in premarital sex because of course, that is what this girl did and why she chose to have an abortion because she had a baby out of wedlock. Her parents found out and, of course, they would not support her having a baby 
So she felt like her only option was to get an abortion because her baby daddy wouldn't help her take care of the baby. So she was cut off from friends, cut off from her support system, and her only choice was to get an abortion. So that is an infamous scene that so many people who have gone through a hell house have reported that was very, very traumatic for them. So I'm done talking about abortion now for those who might be sensitive to that topic. So that was just one incident. There were other incidences where I think it was more common in the 90s, but then they updated this scene as the times went on, as pop culture went on. But back in the 90s, there was a rave scene or a party scene where a girl was at a party. So I'm going to add another trigger warning right here if you are... Um, triggered by the topic of um, date rape drugs or anything like that. Um, again, please fast forward about three or so minutes. I'm going to give you three seconds to click off and fast forward three minutes, three, two, one. So there would be a rave scene where a girl would be given a drug by a guy and the drug was supposed to be a party drug like ecstasy or molly or something like that so the girl would take it the guy would encourage her to you know drink up like he put it in her drink and would encourage her to drink up telling her it was ecstasy or whatever but in reality it was a date rape drug and so um the actress ended up being date raped or it was insinuated that she was date raped and there was this one disturbing scene where she's sitting in her room trying to think about what happened the night before. But of course, she blocked out due to the date rape drug. And um, there would be an, another actor or actress portraying a demon that would come and taunt her. And it would say all of these like awful things like, you know, you don't know how many men you slept with last night. You don't know what you did last night. No matter how hard you try to remember what happened last night, you have you have no idea, do you? Like, essentially tormenting her about, like, how many people she might have slept with, potentially. And the girl is so tormented by these dark thoughts, the actress is so tormented by these dark thoughts, that she ends up committing suicide. And so, again, the message from that scene was... Don't go to parties, don't go to raves, don't take drugs because people are going to put, you know, roofies in your drinks and you could end up being assaulted and you could be end up being assaulted by like many people. You have no idea what could happen to you. And, and while that is an important message to be careful when you go out and party, you know, it basically insinuated that you deserve to go to hell, right? Because the score was dragged to hell. You deserve to go to hell because you went out and partied, because you took drugs, and because you engaged in premarital sex, no matter if any of that was your fault or not. All right, so I am done talking about partying and date rape drugs and things like that, so if that content was triggering for you, you're safe to listen now. So those were just some of the scenes that were depicted in the hell houses that people have reported were very traumatic for them to witness. And they were especially traumatic for people going through the hell houses because often the people going through the hell houses were children. I mean, I read in one article that there would be children as young as like nine or ten going through the hell houses. And then, of course, there would be preteens and teenagers and, you know, moms and dads would go through with their kids, too. 
And I found a great irony in that because growing up in a conservative family, you know, I wasn't allowed to watch R-rated movies or even PG-13 movies for a long, long time. And even when I did start watching those movies, my parents would watch them with me, which is fine. That's all good. You know, I think obviously you should censor what your kids watch to a degree. But yet, when it would come to things like that, you know, and I'm sure like many other conservative kids had that same experience where they weren't allowed to watch PG-13 movies. They weren't allowed to watch R-rated movies. But when it came to seeing the things depicted in the Hello House, well, that was fine, right? It's like you can't watch an R-rated movie, but you can watch, um, you know, buckets of blood being thrown everywhere. You can hear harsh language. You can see um, even like there would be people that would fire fake guns and things like that. So it's like you can see that, <laughs> you can witness that, but you can't watch a PG-13 or R-rated movie. So I thought that was kind of ironic and a little bit of the hypocrisy within conservative Christian groups that it's okay for you to go through a hell house and watch all of these awful things unfold, but you can't go home and watch a PG-13 movie or an R-rated movie, right? Like, if you wouldn't let your kid watch an R-rated movie, why would you let your kid go through a hell house? It's the same argument of, you know, conservative families that are okay with their kids seeing the Passion of the Christ, which is an extremely graphic and violent movie for those of you who have not seen it. So, you know, kids are are um, being made to watch that, but they can't watch um, other R-rated movies, right? So I think there's like some irony there with and hypocrisy with um, the Christian community in, in terms of like what content is and isn't okay for kids to watch. But that's a deeper conversation for another day. So in that similar vein, I want to keep talking about the interesting aftermath of hell houses and how I think that their existence was really problematic. I think one reason why hell houses are problematic is because, um, if you'll remember, or if you're tuning in for the first time, way, way back at the start of my podcast, I believe it's episode four, I released an episode about the Amazon docuseries Shiny Happy People which covered the Duggar family and fundamentalist Christianity. And I argued that fundamentalist Christianity is similar to being in a cult. And within that episode, I talked about a resource created by Dr. Stephen Hassan, who is the leading expert on cults. And he created what is known as the BITE model, B-I-T-E. And this is basically how to recognize that you are in a cult or how to um, understand a little bit how cults operate. So the acronym stands for Behavior Control, Information Control, Thought Control, and Emotional Control. And these are the four ways that cults enact control upon their victims, essentially. 
And with Hell Houses, I think we see some elements of the bite model, especially with the B and the E, with behavioral control and emotional control. Hell Houses were meant to prey on people's emotion by creating these really harrowing, really disturbing, emotionally charged scenes where people are screaming and crying and wailing and being taunted and being victimized and being blamed and shamed. It's supposed to create a very emotionally charged atmosphere, along with fear, right? Because it's a very spooky environment, a very creepy environment. It would be dark. There'd be strobe lights. There'd be weird red lighting and people dressed as demons running around. So it was supposed to be very spooky and eerie and creepy, too, along with all of the emotionally charged um, scenes that were being depicted. So Hell Houses definitely used behavior control and emotional control in order to scare people away from doing bad things. Because again, each room depicted a different sin, essentially, and the consequence of that sin would be being dragged to hell. And so it was meant to scare people, scare young people, especially away from making bad decisions, away from falling into sin, away from partying and drinking and having premarital sex and having abortions and um, things like that. And it's very problematic because it's very manipulative, I think. Um, fear, of course, can be a powerful motivator and a powerful, powerful manipulation tactic. And especially in young people, especially in 10, 12, 13-year-olds, even 16, 17-year-olds, even adults, right? <laughs> like anyone, right? Fear can be a very powerful motivator and very powerful manipulation tool for people and the goal of these hell houses was to again like i talked about at the top of the episode was essentially to scare or you can even argue manipulate people into accepting god into accepting jesus as their personal savior because at the very, very end of the health house, if you made it all the way through, some people would have to leave early because they would get too freaked out. But essentially, they would kind of just put you along like cattle and try to push you towards the end. And at the end, you would go through this door made out of a coffin. Like, you would walk through a coffin. Again, spooky, eerie, creepy. You would walk through a coffin, and then you would get into the coffin room, and there would be different coffins propped up in the wall. You would get into a coffin... They would close it, and then people dressed as demons and stuff would come pound on the coffin, knock on the coffin, kick and scream and taunt you and basically give you a feeling of what being in hell would be like, that you're in the dark, you're alone, you're in this confined space, and all you hear is the taunting and screaming of demons, which is horrifying. I mean, I'm an adult, and I don't like the thought of that. Like, I don't like the thought of being in a coffin having someone close it on me and then people are kicking it pounding on it screaming outside of it I mean that would be eerie for me and I'm like a 33 year old adult <laughs> um so imagine a 10 year old kid going through that imagine a 12 year old kid going through that again even if the teen or 16 year old I think would be a little bit spooked by that 
So after you would be released from the coffin, you would be released from like the hell room, essentially, I think is what it was called. Then you would go into this back room with a bunch of folding chairs and there'd be a little stage or whatever. And there would be a pastor there and the pastor would present the gospel to you. And it was basically like the play Hell's Alternative. They would basically offer you the alternative and be like, well, now that you've seen what can happen in hell, now that you've been through the worst of the worst and you've seen what all of your sin can lead to, don't you want to accept Jesus as your personal savior and go to heaven and avoid going to hell? And of course, after going through all of that weird, creepy stuff, you would be like, yeah, (laughs) sign me up. I don't want to go there. I don't want to be alone in the dark with demons, you know, tormenting me day and night like I just went through. So I think that's highly, highly manipulative to create an emotionally emotionally charged environment. I'm so worked up about this. I'm tripping over my words. But I think it's not okay to create an emotionally charged environment to put people through that, especially young, impressionable, vulnerable people. And then at the very end, offer them this alternative. Because again, of course, they're going to say, yes, no one wants to go through what they just went through. So of course, they're going to say yes. So I think it's very manipulative to put someone through that experience and then turn around and ask them to make a really big decision. I think that is one reason why hell houses are problematic. And I want to dive into that a bit more at the end of the episode. But I also want to talk now about the aftermath of hell houses. So interestingly enough, one of the articles I read about hell houses was from Vice. And the author of that article covering hell houses and explaining what they were actually participated in hell houses when they were younger. They were one of the actors, one of the demons that were taunting people throughout the house. And they were very, very devout in their faith as a young person. That's obviously why they agreed to, you know, perform in one of the hell houses. But when they went back to one of the hell houses as an adult and walked through and reported on them, They disclosed that they were atheist and no longer believed in God. And I thought it was very interesting to see someone who was so devout in their faith, devout enough to the point that they would participate in something like a hell house. And then years later, they no longer believe in God at all. And I don't think that's um, uncommon. In fact, ironically enough, Marilyn Manson, you know, the famous singer, musician, shock musician, as he might be known, very gothy, very eerie kind of dude. He actually grew up in a very conservative, very fundamentalist family. No surprise there. (laughs) And he said it was things like going to hell houses and also being made to watch movies like A Thief in the Night, which I'll explain here in just a bit. But it was going through hell houses and watching movies like A Thief in the Night that oddly enough led him to be fascinated in the 
opposite. Rather than being fascinated by God, he was actually fascinated with the Antichrist, fascinated with demonology, fascinated with the darker, creepier stuff that he was supposed to be afraid of. And he later cited that it was the manipulation tactics of being made to watch movies like A Thief in the Night, of sitting through sermons that talked about hell, of going through hell houses. It was all of that manipulation and fear that actually left him very jaded as an adult and made him walk away from his faith because he did not feel that God was real to him and rather something that he was manipulated to believe in. So one of the movies that he mentioned that caused this shift or rift in his faith was A Thief in the Night. It came out in the 1970s, and that was actually a part of a whole series of books, or movies rather, that predicted or depicted the end times, right? It depicted the end of the world. It depicted people being left behind and what would happen to the people who were left behind. It was the Left Behind series before the Left Behind series came out. If you know the popular series I'm talking about, it was a whole book series that talked about the same topic of people being left behind when Jesus comes back and what happens to those poor souls. Anyway, A Thief in the Night depicted the end of the world and what would happen to the people who were left behind when Jesus returns, people who did not accept God, and so therefore they were left behind to perish, essentially, in this like apocalyptic wasteland. And he said that it was very graphic and disturbing. People were being beheaded because they um, chose to believe in God, and so the devil and his demons were going around beheading people, and it was just very graphic and disturbing. And he talked about, too, how, you know, when the end times would come, when the end of the world would come, he would have to be prepared to die for his faith because people were going to persecute Christians and make martyrs out of them. And so he'd have to be prepared to be beheaded. And all of that dark and disturbing stuff led him to become very jaded and have a very jaded view of Christianity and now he has gone on to do what he does and create the kind of art and music that he creates, which is obviously very anti-Christian. So I think it is ironic that he came from such a strong religious background, but now he has gone the opposite way. And I think we see that a lot with people who grew up in really rigid um, Christian families, right? They kind of tend to go hardcore in the opposite direction, if you will. For my closing thoughts, I want to circle back to the idea of fear as a manipulation tactic to get people to believe in God, to get people into heaven. And, you know, of course, people can argue, well, hell houses are not operating today. There's not that kind of, you know, manipulation going around anymore, but I would argue that there still is. It just exists in different forms. I definitely know preachers like Kenneth Copeland. He's a very prominent preacher. Um, he is quite evangelical, quite conservative. I would say maybe a little bit extreme. 
and he is very into fire and brimstone. If you don't know that expression, that is used to describe preachers that are all about hell, right? All they talk about is fire and brimstone. All they talk about is hell and demons and the devil, and they use that to manipulate their congregation into being good Christians, avoiding sin, and working towards getting into heaven. And I call it manipulation because that's what it is, I think. And the reason why I am talking about that is because I want to kind of interject that idea into the conversation that there are a lot of churches and a lot of pastors that still use these fire and brimstone sermons, that still use these manipulation tactics to get their congregation to act in a certain way or believe in a certain way or do certain things. And I don't think that's okay. I don't think going to hell or your fear of going to hell should be what makes you believe in God. If that's all that makes you believe in God, I don't think that's sustainable because fear itself isn't sustainable. It can wear away in time, right? Like we see with all of these people that I mentioned who were even feared into believing in God, but they've kind of fallen away from that, like Marilyn Manson and other people I described. And so fear wears away, but it is love that endures. And I think rather than people relying on manipulation tactics like talking about hell and demons and the devil, I think more churches can lean on presenting the love of God. And I know more churches are moving away from fire and brimstone kind of stuff, but, you know, I still live in the Bible Belt. <laughs> I see, I still see plenty of churches that talk about hell on their billboards and things like that. So that's still around. That's not going anywhere, which is why I'm talking about it today. And I would caution all of us, you know, when we are talking to people who don't believe in God to not try to spook them with the idea of hell because, like I've talked about before, you know, they don't share our worldview, right? Non-believers, non-Christians, whatever you want to call them, they don't share our worldview. And so many of them don't believe in hell, right? And you can't scare them with the idea of hell. I mean, you shouldn't scare them with the idea of hell, but you also can't if they don't acknowledge that there is a hell. And so I think it's kind of a wasted effort to try to manipulate people with the idea of hell um, into believing in God. Rather, I think you would be, it would be more effective to present the gospel as it is, full of love, full of acceptance, full of compassion. In fact, you know, you could argue that, yes, Jesus did talk a lot about hell in the Bible, but there is a really interesting podcast called The Naked Bible Podcast. It was hosted by Mike Heiser up until he passed away um, a few months ago. But he is a very he was a very very prominent theologian, and he created the Naked Bible podcast to examine what the scriptures truly say. So he calls it the Naked Bible because he pulls back kind of all of the rhetoric and all of the cultural lenses that people look at the Bible with, and he pairs it down to what does the scripture actually say. How is it actually translated? Because, you know, he knew Greek, he knew Hebrew, he knew all of that. So he understood 
the original text in the original translations. And so he pointed out that the church made a gross mistake when labeling hell as hell because when Jesus talks about hell, he actually references like three or four different places. And so the idea of hell is actually more complicated than just a lake of fire that everyone goes to, right? Um, so this blanket word of hell that we see all throughout the New Testament, because interestingly enough, it's not mentioned in the Old Testament, but it's mentioned throughout the New Testament. And again, there are three or four different words, three or four different regions that Jesus actually is speaking about when the word hell is used. But early church translators just decided to put that blanket word of hell in that place. And so that's why the idea of hell has kind of been oversimplified to just a lake of fire and a pit of eternal damnation rather than all of these different regions that Jesus was referring to. And if you want, I can link that episode where he kind of breaks it down. I'm not going to try to in this one because it's a it's a really complicated topic and I am not a theologian, but I can link that episode if you want to listen to Mike Heiser's take on hell and what it is and how the language around hell has really actually um, oversimplified what it truly was and what Jesus was referring to when he talked about hell all the times he mentioned it in the Gospels. So anyway, I think, yes, even though Jesus did talk about hell, again, what places were was he referring to? Well, there were qu uh, quite a few different places. If you listen to that episode, you'll see what I mean. And two, when Jesus was speaking about hell, he was usually speaking about it to the religious leaders. When he was ministering to people who didn't believe in him or people who had sinned, he didn't mention hell. You know, he healed people, he comforted people, he exercised demons, he um, taught sermons, and none of those ended with an altar call that was about, you know, give your life to me or you're going to suffer in a pit of eternal damnation. <laughs> you know, there was no altar call like that um, that came from Jesus's mouth. So, as I often try to, I try to refer back to how did Christ minister to people? How did he meet people where they were at? How did he make himself attractive to people? And I would argue that it isn't because he manipulated people into believing him. He presented himself accurately as full of love and compassion and mercy and judgment too, yes. But again, often when you see people who came to Jesus for help, he did not meet them with judgment, but he met them with compassion and empathy. And I think that is what draws people to Christ like the Bible says, it's the kindness of God that draws us to repentance. And so I think that is how we can make the gospel attractive to people. It's not by manipulating people and using fear tactics or scare tactics, but it's about presenting Christ accurately.
I mention this again because even though hell houses are not really a thing, like I said, there are still plenty of pastors that lean into having sermons about hell and other fear tactics to get people into heaven. And I think we as Christians sometimes can be so concerned about getting people into heaven than we are about presenting the gospel. And you may ask, what's the difference, right? Isn't getting people into heaven the same as presenting the gospel to them? And I would say no, because to me, the difference is whether it is about you or is it about God? I think when people are so concerned with others getting into heaven or saving them from hell, I think it's about them, right? I want to I want to save this person from hell. I want to save them from eternal damnation. I want to make sure they get into heaven. It's my duty as a Christian to make sure that people get into heaven to save people from hell. And I would argue that it's not. It's not. It's not your duty to get people into heaven. It's not your duty to save people from hell. That should not be our focus as Christians. That should not be our motivators that we use to motivate others, right? (laughs) We shouldn't be motivated by our fear of hell, and we shouldn't motivate others by the fear of hell to try to get them into heaven, because it's not up to us to save or protect anyone from hell. All our job is, as Christians, is to present the gospel to people and leave the choice up to them. The gospel doesn't call us to save people from hell. The Great Commission that Jesus gave his disciples, the last thing he said on earth before he returned to heaven was not go out into the world and save people from hell and eternal damnation. He said, go out into the world, preach the gospel, and make disciples of all nations. That was it. That is our Great Commission. That is our call to action. That is our job as Christians. And I know y'all know that, but I think there are a lot of Christians who get confused and think that their job is to rescue or save people from hell. And no one can do that but God. No one can save people but God. In fact, a lot of non-believers even reject the idea of the term saving, right? Because of course they'll say, "I I don't need to be saved. You can't save me. And they're right, we can't. All we can do is present the gospel and point them to the one person who can. And so that is why I think this is still an important conversation for today, because I think, again, so many Christians think that their job is to save people from the pits of hell, to ensure that people get into heaven, and they put more focus on that rather than presenting the gospel. And I think it is that focus on saving people from hell that actually pushes people away and has the opposite effect. Because again, if people don't believe in God, they don't recognize hell. If people don't believe in God, they don't recognize sin, and they don't think they're going to be punished for their sins. So I think we can actually have the opposite effect and push people away when we focus on saving people from hell rather than presenting the gospel. I think, too, we need to be cautious as Christians 
and not underestimate how unattractive we can make the gospel look. We should be more concerned with that than with the idea of scaring people into heaven. We should be concerned with, are we making the gospel look attractive to people? Are we presenting Christ in a way that will make people want to follow him? And we do that by being the hands and feet of Jesus, by being kind, by being empathetic, by being understanding, by being warm and welcoming and inviting and getting to know people who are different from us, for not judging others for the same mistakes that we ourselves make, for embracing those who are different from us just the way Christ embraces all of us and calls us to make disciples of all nations, not people who are just like us. That is how we draw people to Christ. That is how we make the gospel attractive, by letting Christ shine through, by letting his mercy and his kindness and his goodness shine through, by talking about how he has been kind and good and merciful to us. You know, fear fades away, but love is what endures. Like that one verse says, you know, these three things remain faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. That is what endures. That is what we carry into eternity, is our love for others. So I'm going to end it here, but tune in next week for more spooky conversations. And I have an exciting business update. My podcast is now available on YouTube Music. So if you have the YouTube Music app, if that's how you like to listen to music or podcast, you can find me there. You can just click on the podcast category. And then you can search Lone Wolves Club and I'll pop up so you can follow me there now too or listen to me there now too. <laughs> Remember to follow me on Instagram at lonewolvesclub.pod. I share, you know, some clips and reels and behind the scenes stuff. And you can also email me at lonewolvesclubpod at gmail.com. That is a great place to leave me feedback or leave any requests for topics you would like to see. Maybe there's something that your church doesn't really talk about that you would love to cover and put out to our community. Speaking of our community, please don't forget to rate and review this podcast from whatever platform you listen to podcasts on, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple, wherever it allows you to rate and review. Please do so. I know every content creator asks for that, but it really, really does help push out my content to more people and the more people who see my content, the more people we can welcome into our club. I want to welcome more people into our community and make people feel more welcomed and less of a lone wolf in today's society. All right. Thank you so much for listening and for spending a tiny portion of your day with me. I'm your host, Nicole Porter. And until next time.